0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend, colleague, and comrade, Derek Davison, here to discuss the news. And as always, there's a lot going on in the world, so why don't we just get going? Derek, it seems like the Antarctic ice sheet isn't doing too well. What's going on? Stunning, I know. Um, (laughs) What a So there's a couple of new
1: studies that uh, were published this week. um, One in... Uh, the journal Nature, another one in the journal called Nature Climate Change. The one in Nature uh, was done by uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, or led by at least NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and it finds that the Antarctic ice shelf is losing as much ice from what's known as calving, uh, where flakes of it basically come off the top and fall into the ocean, as it is from... Melting ice caused by warmer seas underneath. Now, my sense of this is that scientists were already aware of how much was being lost because of warming waters below, but they were surprised to find that the amount of ice that, that the sheet is losing due to calving is as great. So, basically, what this means is I guess estimates of how quickly Antarctica or the Antarctic ice shelf has been losing uh, ice, and this goes back. A couple of decades uh, have been about half
0: right. It's actually been double what scientists thought was happening. Um, so, Derek, so what you're saying is people need to subscribe to American Prestige now, yes, because we yes. as a species might may not, not have much time much left. Longer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you may Good not have much time there. left. Get in there under the wire, guys. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. So this is. I mean, this is really bad. Uh, you're talking about. This is absolutely uh, most terrible. Of the this is absolutely sea level terrible. potential in the world, the sea level increase potential is in Antarctica uh, as ice shelves uh, start to, I mean, the stuff that's already kind of out over the water is is one thing, but the, as the ice shelves, uh, as you get t- toward land, you're talking about adding new volume to the oceans, and that's where things get really dangerous. The other study in, in nature climate change, uh, it has to do with the warmer waters that are uh, accumulating in the southern Ocean apparently they are warmer than previously thought there uh, the quote here from this piece in uh, uh, on the, the conversation.com says they may be compromising the stability of the East Antarctic ice sheet so that ice sheet is about the size of the United States it's pretty large uh, it is uh, not good to find that uh, these waters are warming more quickly or more intensely uh, than previously Thought on. In addition to that, if you know if people care about uh, wildlife, this is not great for the wildlife in the Southern Ocean. It's uh, you know it's a real ecosystem change. So yeah, this is this is not great. the The researchers of, of this study uh, said they hoped to underscore the urgency of limiting global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I tried really hard not to chuckle when I read that line because there is almost no way humanity is going to be limiting global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, not great news from, from Antarctica. Not a, not a typical topic of conversation here, but uh, it could be affecting American prestige, not just the podcast, but the actual concept of American prestige uh,
0: more quickly than we we might have anticipated. So let's move on uh, to the Middle East and election polls in Israel and Gaza. So as people
1: know, we, we did a special with Omar Shaker earlier this week uh, talking about the uh, weekend bombardment of Gaza. It began on Friday with what the Israeli military called a preemptive attack. Uh, it's unclear what they thought they were preempting. Uh, but this is connected to the arrest of a, a senior Palestinian Islamic Jihad leader in Jenin in the West Bank. On Monday. Trains in the Gaza periphery, including Ashkelon, suspended, and many roads near the border closed in fear of rocket or anti-tank fire from the Gaza Strip. After that arrest, the Israelis basically spent the rest of the week kind of stemwinding themselves over the possibility of some kind of retaliation from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They imposed a blockade on Gaza that for a period of time shut down the only power plant in Gaza due to lack of fuel, cutting electricity from, I think maybe 10 hours a day on a good day down to like 4 or 5 hours of, of electricity per day. The The attacks went on all week. Palestinian Islamic Jihad responded with rocket fire. Um, they fired somewhere over a 1,000, I think maybe over 1,100 rockets uh, out of Gaza. There were no casualties in Israel. Uh, the casualties in Gaza, I think at this point, are 47 killed, uh, about 17 of them, at least 17 of them children. So yeah, this is, I mean, this is a strange, I mean, we talked about this with Omar. I don't want to spend uh, more time dwelling on it, but this is a a different pattern to me because the Israelis in every sense, not just in the sort of historical sense of the occupation and everything, uh, but in every sense, they fired the first shot here. They started this exchange of fire on Friday and yet it's the same scenario that plays out every time Israel bombards Gaza. You get the usual suspects in the West saying Israel is defending itself. And, um, you know, you get the, the the same rhetoric every time a civilian is killed. Well, that must have been because of errant rocket fire, which in this case is, is doubly ridiculous because there wouldn't have been any rocket fire at all uh, had the Israelis not launch this attack on Friday. Part of the consideration is probably uh, Yair Lapid's trying to burnish his resume ahead of November snap election. He will be contesting for the premiership, you know, in his coalition uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu, of co- who of course has a uh, well-deserved reputation for, uh, not having any problem killing Palestinians. Uh, Lapid did not have that, that on his resume. So now he does, I guess, and that was worth, uh, killing all these people. I, I, you know, I think that's, that's certainly part of the consideration. To those polls, uh, you know, we, having kind of mentioned the election here, uh, there were three new polls out this week for three different media outlets that all, put netanyahu uh the Likud party and and his usual kind of coalition partners on the uh, extreme israeli right ahead going into november's election the polls all had them emerging uh with 59 votes now 59 votes is makes them uh would put them uh, make them a larger block than the current Collective opposition, which is basically just an anti-Netanyahu coalition, but those that the current coalition is forecast in these polls anywhere from fifty-one to fifty-five seats. So uh, they're they're in the rearview mirror, kind of looking ahead at Netanyahu. However. 59 seats is not a majority. The the Knesset is 120 seats. Uh, so you need at least 61 to form a government that, that has any chance of surviving. Uh, so Netanyahu, if that were the outcome, if he emerged with 59 votes at his control, uh, he would have to find two votes somewhere. Um, either, you know, peel off a couple of members of, of the opposition coalition or even an entire party. And there are some very conservative parties in the coalition that might be willing to listen to his pitch. Although, again, those parties all came together to prevent Netanyahu from ever being prime minister again. So uh, my guess is uh, if these polls are correct and if that holds through November, um, Israel is probably looking at a at an inconclusive outcome that could mean another snap election you know, a few months down
0: the line. So let's stay broadly in the region and talk about the JCPOA and the uh, negotiations over the Iran nuclear agreements.
1: So last week, there was sort of an impromptu uh, round of talks. The uh, European Union sent its team, the Iranians sent their team to Vienna, the United States sent its team. This was all based on this uh, proposal that the EU foreign policy uh, chief, Josep Borrell, proposed to all the parties, which has the air of a kind of take it or leave it. There's not going to be any more negotiation. Um, on Monday, the uh, Wall Street Journal's Lawrence Norman, who is, or, yeah, I, I guess it was over the weekend, actually, not Monday, excuse me, uh, Lawrence Norman reported that there had been significant progress. Uh, in these talks now, Norman is uh, you know the Wall Street Journal is what it is, but but they do have a line to the U.S. security establishment. So if if they report this, it's probably uh, you can probably assume that at least that somebody in the U.S. government believes there has been significant progress. On Monday, uh, Norman's reporting suggested that they would they would take uh, the first part of the week off because of the. Uh, Islamic holiday of Ashura, which is particularly celebrated uh, by Shia and and Iran being a you know Shia sectarian government, they would you know take that time off, and then after that there could be an announcement of a of an agreement. What happened in reality uh, was that talks uh, adjourned basically on Monday with the EU uh, really saying we've presented our final version of of this agreement to revive the the nuclear deal, the 2015 nuclear deal. Uh, To all the parties, that's it. We're not going to reopen it. We're not going to renegotiate. It's up to all the parties to go home and kind of deliberate and come back with a yes or no answer. So that's where things stand um more recently there was a story on wednesday uh where where wherein the u.s department of justice charged a member of iran's islamic revolutionary guard corps uh, with plotting the murder of former u.s national security advisor john bolton uh i don't think that will affect the talks but it is kind of hanging out there uh in the breeze Um, anyway one way or the other it it sure sounds like we're approaching a point where this much longer than it had to be uh, extended process of trying to revive this agreement uh, will be coming to an end.
0: So what does this mean?
1: Uh, Well, I don't know yet. I don't know what the, I mean, I don't know what the EU's offer was. Um, I would assume, and it sounds like from, from the way the U S has responded to it, that uh, it's broadly acceptable to the U S the Iranians may have more, more of an issue. They've been, uh, making demands that are kind of, uh, you know, running into dead ends. They were, of course, demanding that the U.S. Uh, provide assurances that it wouldn't quit the deal again, which is politically impossible, essentially, for, for the Biden administration to, to provide. Uh, most recently, they were demanding that the International Atomic Energy Agency drop uh, and its investigation into trace uranium that were, was found at, I think, three undeclared sites. They have questions about how it got there. Um, the IAEA is not... There's no indication that the IAEA is going to drop that investigation or that the U.S. or, you know, let's say Germany, France, uh, the U.K., whatever, are going to pressure the IAEA to drop it. So the, Iranian, the Iranians have had these kind of final uh, last minute requests or demands that, that haven't been accepted. Uh, so I think the question now is whether they're comfortable uh, m- m- kind of rejoining or re- reviving uh, the deal on the terms that are on the table. And and I, I, I don't know. We won't know that
0: until they give an answer. So let's stay in the world of treaties and talk about New Start to start being the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty and Russian inspections related to it.
1: Yes. Uh, so the Russian government announced uh, earlier this week, I believe on Monday, that it was suspending uh, participation in the inspections aspect of the new start uh, of new start. This, you know, is where the us. is allowed to say, Schedule uh, an inspection of Russia's nuclear stockpiles, or Russia uh, is allowed to do likewise for the with the with respect to the U.S. stockpile to make sure that they're uh, staying, you know, in the bounds of, of the treaty. The Russians have given a couple of explanations as to why they've suspended participation in this part of the treaty. Um, they argued initially that it was because U.S. sanctions and kind of actually international sanctions and travel bans, airspace bans on on Russian aircraft have. Eventually made it physically impossible for Russian personnel to get to the U.S. to conduct an inspection, which means the treaty is sort of lopsided in the U.S. favor because the U.S. could still theoretically conduct inspections of Russia's stockpile. Moscow says that it has become difficult for Moscow to carry out fair inspections on U.S. sites due to sanctions that include closure of airspace for Russian planes and visa restrictions on Russian officials. They they have. Also now, uh, in the in the days since making this announcement, uh, suggested that there was some kind of like abrupt uh, request from the United States to conduct an inspection, uh, a request that the Russians have called a, quote, unreasonable and unnecessary escalation. Uh, I'm not sure the details of this or why it it seemed so provocative to them. Uh, But this is, you know, this is another part of the story, apparently another part of the reason why they decided to suspend their participation in this aspect of the treaty. Now, it's should be said, they haven't withdrawn from the treaty. Um, they the the Russian foreign ministry went to uh, to some lengths to stress that Moscow remains committed to the treaty in principle. Uh, it's still participating in other aspects of the treaty, but just has suspended for a a time this inspections aspect. What this means. Um, in terms of n- nuclear arms limitation in general, is probably not great. Start new start is sort of the only thing left after the Trump administration kind of ran roughshod uh, over uh, strategic arms limitation treaties uh, during during its four years in office. Uh, this is pretty much the only treaty left governing the size of the U.S. and and Russian arsenals. Um, there is, you know, some hope that the Biden administration has offered and Russia said it's, you know, sort of amenable to negotiating some kind of follow-on treaties. New Start uh, expires relatively soon, I think. Um, so, you know, there is some, there there is some there's been some thought given to negotiating a, a follow-on treaty, but it hasn't gotten anywhere, of course, with the, the war in Ukraine and everything that's gone on in that bilateral relationship. It's it's not a great time to be talking about uh, that sort of thing anyway. But, um, you know, this, this is probably not a great sign in terms of uh you know trying to build on new start and negotiate a a new treaty after it after it goes away
0: so the ice sheet is melting and the the things that restrict nuclear weapons are slowly going away well maybe we can help the ice sheet along a little bit with a couple of you know oh that's a good Derek always looking on the bright side we can get this done much more
1: efficiently I think yeah if we (laughs) if we just go for it
0: go for broke just need a little nudge Uh, Speaking of Ukraine, why don't we talk about Ukraine and updates on the war there? So um, all of a sudden on Thursday,
1: uh, just before, you know, sort of uh, in the hours before we recorded this, there were reports from Ukraine, from Ukrainian officials that uh, they were noticing a stepped up Russian, more or less artillery, although I I don't know if there, there may be some airstrikes involved as well, but stepped up artillery attacks basically across the whole front line. Uh, of the conflict as it stands now, which starts in the northeast around Kharkiv and in that province and then kind of runs through the Donbass and then south across Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast. Uh, th- so they're noticing more artillery fire in general kind of across this front line. I don't know what that means. There's been some Russian advance in um, in the Donbass in the last couple of weeks. Not much. Uh, they've only advanced a few kilometers, but um, you know they, they may have some intention of of pushing on a little faster there uh there is of course the perpetual ukrainian counteroffensive in the south that they keep talking about without ever actually it seems to me um you know actually starting it and the russians have supposedly moved uh soldiers there moved troops there uh into the south to to you know prepare for this Counter-offensive and try to try to fend it off, but uh, apart from these uh, bombardments, in terms of on-the-ground movement, there hasn't really been much to say over the last several days. Now there is something to say in Crimea, uh, where there were several explosions, unexplained explosions at this point uh, that hit. A Russian airbase in Crimea on Tuesday. Uh, at least one person was killed; a number of others were wounded. Uh, Russian officials are saying that these were accidental explosions; they were caused by the detonation of basically ordnance, ammunition. Uh, but speculation has been rampant for the last couple of days that this could have been the work of the Ukrainian military, maybe Ukrainian special forces, maybe some kind of guerrilla group that's formed in Crimea that's. Operating there, who knows? Uh, Ukrainian officials haven't overtly claimed responsibility for for these blasts or for causing them, but they have made some cryptic sounding comments, which could just be, you know, bluster. Uh, But the Washington Post reported on Wednesday, uh, quoting an anonymous Ukrainian official, uh, that these explosions were the work of Ukrainian special forces. Uh, The Ukrainians are claiming that nine Russian aircraft were destroyed. Uh, In the explosions, the Russians are saying no aircraft were damaged or destroyed. There's supposedly, I haven't really looked closely enough at it to, to, I'm not sure I would be qualified to to say anyway, uh, but there's supposedly satellite imagery of the base that does show damaged or destroyed aircraft. So that part of the story, the Russians may be uh, putting on a good face here um but you know all, all we have at this point to say that it was ukrainian special forces is this seemingly this one guy talking to the washington post and we don't know who it is we don't know anything about him uh or her i suppose um uh, so uh, you know it's a it's a pretty thin read at this point if it w- was uh, ukrainian special forces that that could be a big deal i mean if the ukrainians are are able to start striking targets like this well behind uh, the russian front line that would obviously uh, be a, a new factor at play in the conflict. I should note uh, there were there are reports now on Thursday of explosions at a military base in Belarus that is used, known to be used by the Russian military. Uh, again, sort of the uh, Belarusian military uh, is claiming that these these were accidental; there were no casualties, et cetera, et cetera. But in light of uh, what's happened in Ukraine and the speculation swirling about that, I'm sure there will be. Uh, Equal speculation about what's happened in Belarus
0: here. So sticking in Europe, let's talk about Joseph Biden, Finland, Sweden, and NATO.
1: Yes. So uh, Joe Biden on uh, Tuesday signed the instruments of ratification for Finland and Sweden uh, to join NATO. Both of those instruments were approved by the uh, U.S. Senate last week by huge margins. I think it was 95 to one on both of them. The U.S. becomes the 23rd NATO member to ratify uh, Finland and Sweden's NATO applications. Uh, the process is that uh, NATO members kind of get together and agree to open up the accession process, but then it goes to the legislatures of the uh, all the various NATO members, and they each have to approve uh, the new members to for them to finally be let into the club. So, Finland and Sweden are most of the way there uh, in terms of the the pure kind of uh, number of NATO members that that have to ratify the their accession, but. Uh, I would say most of the work is still ahead of them. And specifically, I would say Turkey, which uh, stood in the way initially of even accepting their applications, uh, insisting that it wants concessions related to mostly, I think, towards uh, policies that, that both countries have adopted toward groups like the Kurdistan Workers Party, the Gülen Organization, groups that Turkey uh, has outlawed. And so, you know, I think that's that's yet to it's yet to be determined whether uh, the Turks are going to be satisfied with whatever Sweden and Finland have done to date, uh, satisfied enough to approve their their memberships. Uh, they've they've hinted that they would uh, they're not happy with how things are going. Although there's a report just today uh, that the Swedish government did agree to extradite uh, one Turkish national back to Turkey, who's wanted for fraud, I guess in Turkey. I don't know the the details of this case, but this is part of the dispute. Is Turkey is expecting? Uh, or Turkish officials have said they're expecting Sweden to extradite dozens of people basically back to Turkey. Uh, Sweden, Swedish officials have suggested that they're not, they didn't agree to that. They have to, uh, any extradition would have to go through the legal system as it, as it, uh, you know, wouldn't under any other circumstance. Uh, so there's a bit of a dispute over what exactly was, um, they've, what exactly they've agreed to in their, uh, the negotiations they've been having over this NATO application. Uh, anyway, the upshot is uh, there's still a lot more that needs to be done here. And I, I, I would not say that it's a done deal yet that Sweden and Finland are going to join NATO. I think Turkey will still still try to try to extract concessions here and is still prepared to uh, to gum up the works. I don't know how far they're prepared to go with that, but
0: probably still more controversy to come. So let's turn to our final topic, which will be Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Africa and U.S. policy toward the continent of Africa as a whole.
1: Yes. Uh, so, Blinken this week uh, undertook a, a three-country trip, uh, Africa trip, started in uh, South Africa. He then went to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's now in Rwanda, and then he'll be heading back to Washington, I guess, barring any, uh, you know, unforeseen developments. Um, what is relevant here, I mean, he's sort of gotten involved in, in diplomacy, kind of regional diplomacy between the DR Congo and Rwanda over you know they've had they've had a border dispute and issues where the dr congo government has accused rwanda of supporting a rebel group in the eastern drc uh, and so he's kind of doing doing a little bit of shuttle diplomacy on that i think but the main topic and certainly the the thing that kind of dominated his time in south africa was the revelation or the uh, announcement of a new-ish uh, U.S. policy toward Africa that the Biden administration is trying to roll out. Uh, Foreign Policy magazine uh, reported on this earlier this week and kind of outlined what the policy was going to be. Uh, basically, it is. it sounds like the administration wants to get away from a counterterrorism-centric military-first kind of approach uh, toward dealing with Africa and and pursue things like uh, economic aid, energy transitions, uh, pandemic recovery, you know, kind of winding its spiel, the, the typical U.S. spiel on democracy and human rights and that sort of thing. The United States wants to strengthen our partnerships across Africa in ways that serve your interests, our interests, and the interests of people worldwide. Uh, basically, to get away from an overly militarized Africa policy, which I think has been uh, largely the U.S. uh, approach to Africa since the war on terror began, if not before. This is, uh, you know, various administrations have talked about changing the U.S. approach toward Africa before. So I I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in this. We'll see what actually happens. Um, But if it does transpire, you know, I've I've Talked about this, and um, I know you—you you know Alex Thurston, who's one of my columnists at Foreign Exchanges, who writes about the Sahel quite a bit, uh, has talked about this at length. The the current. U.S. approach to Africa has done nothing for anyone and hasn't really helped the U.S. Uh, establish a presence in Africa, as witnessed by uh, sort of the continent-wide yawn when the U.S. asked countries to join the, the uh, anti-Russia sanctions regime and uh, the inroads that China has made in Africa. Uh, it certainly hasn't helped any kind of ordinary people in the Sahel particularly, but other parts of Africa as well, uh, who are kind of you know, at the whim of militaries that get a lot of aid and training from the United States and then get involved in politics through coups or or, or what have you. The only people who really have won out in this policy are Military dictators, and I look at people like uh, Abdel Fattah sisi in Egypt, or you know the various juntas in in West Africa now, and, and other parts of the continent. You know they're they're kind of doing okay because we don't want to alienate anybody, and we're, we're too sort of focused on counterterrorism and our partners in counterterrorism to uh, you know sort of think about what is actually happening to to people in Africa. So um, he, you know he's talked about this. As I said, Alex has talked about this at length, and he's sort of my my Sahel go- to guy and and his argument, I think, would be anything different has to be better than what the U.S. has been doing. So hopefully, if this does lead to a to a policy shift, it will be a a more constructive one, particularly for people in Africa, but um, you know, just across the board.
0: Derek, your knowledge impresses me. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate hold, that. Hold on, I want to come up with something. Your knowledge impresses me. <laughs> your disposition. Hold on, I was say Also impresses. my <laughs> disposition depresses. Derek, your knowledge impresses me. Your disposition. All right, whatever. Derek, thank you as always. Your knowledge always impresses me, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Bye.